Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Plus Four podcast, exploring the big wide world of Hickory Golf. I'm your host, Rob Berman. Episodes of this podcast reflect the personalities, the passion, and the pursuit of the game as it was played in the pre-1935 era across the world. Please subscribe and hit the like button to help us build our network of golfing fans coordinated in the United States through the Society of Hickory Golfers. And visit us online at plus4.org. I've known you a few years, but I don't actually know your full backstory. Could you just take us to the beginning and talk about your relationship with golf before Hickory Golf? 1978 was a year that I had an epiphany that I was never going to be a golf professional at a private country club. I have a bad tendency that if you ask me what I think, I tell you, which is never going to work at a private club because you have to walk the fence. And a lot of times I don't agree with some of the things that are said, so I usually say so. So I got out of the business and did a couple of odd jobs and then found that I started working on golf clubs because I was collecting clubs. I just going to flea markets and buying them. And in my garage, I started working on a few clubs and there was a guy in Denver who had some extra cash and wanted to shovel it somewhere. And so he came to me and said, let's open a golf repair shop. Mm. So we did and ran a golf repair shop in Denver for, oh, must have been five years. And that was mainly modern clubs? That was classics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. The Tommy Armors and the MTs and that kind of stuff. I was all self-taught. I never had any formal training. So a lot of this stuff I learned because I buy clubs, take them home and tear them completely apart just to see how they were put together. Mm -hmm. If you understand how they were put together, you understand a better way of taking them apart without destroying them down the road. And one of my bigger clients was Jeff Ellis up here on Woodby Island. And in 1984, Jeff said, why don't you move up here? Because the shipping is killing me. Because he was shipping me a lot of clubs. Yeah. So I didn't have anything else to do. I just met a, a lady who we'd started dating. And she and I came up and looked around. And I said, well, you know, I got nothing to do. So I'm going to move to Seattle. Would you like to come along? And she says, well, under one condition. And I said, perfect. So we went back, packed up the U-Haul and moved to Seattle, got married, opened up a club repair shop in Seattle till the Metalwoods came out. Once Metal Woods came out, I realized I never wanted to be an assembler of golf clubs. Yeah. Only. And I'm guessing the club repair shop wasn't the one condition. Yeah. <laughs> no, the one condition was I get married. Yeah. I, and I she figured. and I get married. So that was 1984. And I'm not sure why she's put up with me this long, but we're still married. So yeah. Congrats. Yeah, absolutely. How did Jeff Ellis find you? Do you know that story? Well, I was working on a bunch of clubs for people. Somehow I had gotten my name out to people in other states. And Jeff did a lot of research on clubs. And, and he knew Joe Ruchin down in California, who was a really good repairer, craftsman. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how Jeff, I never asked him, actually. But again, but, Jeff was sending you vintage <laughs> 70s and 80s clubs, maybe, or yeah. earlier. Earlier than that, yeah. He, yeah, he, yeah. We had a lot of Tommy Armors, uh, the McGregor mm -hmm. MTs, the Tony Pennas, that kind of stuff. And, and Jeff was at the time researching his book and also doing appraisals on collections and buying clubs and then having them repaired and 
fixing them up and selling them. So, mm -hmm. um, and you were not working for a golf course. This was your full-time gig. This was my full-time gig. Uh -huh. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, the guy that had the extra cash was a printer and he just wanted to have someplace to funnel some money. And this was something he thought would be interesting. I was, hmm. uh, doing work for quite a few clubs in the Denver area. And I had people in 10 or 12 states mailing me clubs to work on. Uh, the big thing I did back then that a lot of people didn't do or couldn't do was the engraving on the tops of the heads. Mm -hmm. I could put the, the stamping back into the head deeper. Right. Mainly a wooden head. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Wood heads. Yeah. These were all persimmon heads. Yeah. And I was going to flea markets and buying clubs and garage sales and I would buy hickories here and there. And then I thought, well, hell, this could be a lot of fun to go out and play. So mm. once we got to Seattle, I started working on playing clubs for hickory. And then when the market fell out with Metal Woods coming out, I decided it was time to do something else. Yeah. And the Big Bertha was really the beginning of that. Is that right? Yeah. Callaway was the... Cal Lynx had one. Lynx had some Metal Woods, I think. The first metal woods were probably 76. They had the Liberty irons, and I think they had the metal face with a wood inlay in the back. Uh huh. And are you the type of guy that can see a set of clubs and date it just by eye? No, there's not a hell of a lot I can do by eye. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have, I'm a firm believer that the good Lord gave everybody a special talent. Some of it greater than others, but you have a gift. And my gift is I can take a piece of wood and work on it and make it, you know, a lot of people think it turns out fairly well. Yeah, so, absolutely. I've yeah. seen it. Yeah. So it, it's, it, and there are people out there who do extraordinarily good work. There really are. There's some amazing restorers out there, but I'm not one who knows the history a lot because I don't remember it. I don't mm -hmm. have a gift for remembering things. Yeah. I have to see somebody probably 25 times to remember what their <laughs> name is. <laughs> You're in the majority. So would it be fair to say that you introduced yourself to Hickory Golf? I did introduce myself to Hickory Golf, yes. Uh -huh. yeah. And back then when you started finding clubs at flea markets and uh, beginning to play with them, did you were you the lone wolf in a sense? There wasn't many of us here in Seattle area for let's in in let's say 1980 late 84 early 85. Uh-huh. The biggest tournament in the area was Crooked River Ranch down in Oregon. Harvey Hickson had an annual tournament and I found out about it and went down there and through them I found Pat Sutton's antique show every uh -huh. year and I yeah. went there for several years. But then once I stopped the repair shop and got into the golf course maintenance business, I uh, quit playing golf pretty much totally for 20 plus years. Uh -huh. And Pat is associated with Riverside in Portland? Pat is, yes. Pat was the head golf pro at Riverside for mm -hmm. oof, uh, over 30 years. Really nice guy. He, he collects, I think, especially golf balls. Uh -huh. But he, he carries on an annual show, usually in the spring. I know for at least 30 years now. Mm -hmm. And so when wood-headed <clears throat> drivers and that went out of fashion and metal-headed clubs started, you transferred somehow into the golf course maintenance world. Is that right? I did. I, did. I grew up on a farm, so mm -hmm. I liked being outside. Yeah. So I sent resumes to every club within probably 30 miles of here in Shoreline. Sandpoint Country Club called me back 
like two days before I was going to my annual tournament in Wyoming and said, come in for an interview. And I did. And when I got the day I got back, called up and said, you're hired. Come mm -hmm. on in. And that was 1991. <laughs> and did you mentor for a few years or did they stick you right into the fire? They stuck me right into the fire. I, uh -huh. I started out mowing greens and raking bunkers. I was a section hand. Uh -huh. And I was mostly older than a lot of the guys starting there. And I knew I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. So every time an opportunity came open to do something like be a irrigation tech or spray tech or a project came up, I bought, I was the first one to stick my hand up and, and said, I'll do that. I'll do that. So they saw that I was somebody who was interested in improving and not just simply mowing greens and raking bunkers and worked my way up to the assistant superintendent and stayed there until, well, been about four years now. Mm -hmm. And all the while you were still tinkering with club repair and things on your own? No, no. Mm -hmm. I was still playing with pit freeze. I didn't do much repair work because I didn't have a place to do it. I'd moved all the equipment into my garage and it was cold out there in the winter. Mm -hmm. And in the summertime, I wanted to play golf and I was working every day and it was just, I just had taken time off. Yeah. And when I retired, I thought, what the hell? I really enjoyed repairing clubs. I love doing it. I just, I do it for free, you know, but I've got a little room down the basement down here. It's very small. I can almost reach across with my arms spread. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's about eight feet wide and about 12 feet long. And I put all my stuff in there and ranged the counters and everything, got it right the way I wanted to. Two people in that room is a crowd. Mm -hmm. So at the time when I was working at Sandpoint, Jimmy Von Laszlo was living right outside the front gate. And so I would stop by, uh, after I retired, I worked in the pro shop for a while, I still do. But I would take clubs up to him because he was doing the repair work. So I would take the clubs up there. And after I'd gone into his shop a few times and, and he and I'd gotten better acquainted and, and I thought, you know, I really missed working on clubs. I really had forgotten how much I loved doing that. And so when I retired, I just decided I was going to start repairing clubs again. And if mm -hmm. people wanted to send me stuff, that was fine. I had collected enough stuff. I could probably keep myself busy with my own stuff for three or four years. And it's been a godsend this year because there's been nothing to do other than stay yeah. home. When you talk about Jim Von Lasso and his shop, are you referring to his rep of Mura clubs or something different? No, he was he was putting shafts in clubs for Sandpoint and regripping and, okay, and I see. some other repairs. And, and he was also at the time, this is after you guys had already started the Northwest Hickory Players group. Mm -hmm. So he was doing Hickory golf and I had played Hickory golf before. Just, I thought, man, this, this could be a lot of fun. What I found, I'm an amateur uh, woodworker by, by any stretch, and even that's a glorification. But what I found when I started tinkering with clubs and taking shafts out and repinning hosels <laughs> and doing the basic repair is that these clubs are probably more forgiving than most of us really think when we start. What advice would you have for listeners that are afraid of getting started with Hickory Golf Club basic maintenance? The biggest reason that I found that most hickory clubs break is because they have not been resecured with new epoxy. Mm -hmm. The old uh, fish glue, animal glue, whatever they use to hold them together has broken down over the past 80 or 90 years and it causes vibration and, and, and movement. Right. So the best thing to do if you're going to play hickory golf and you buy a set of golf clubs 
and you don't know whether they've been re-glued, repinned, whatever, is to have that done. And it's not that difficult. There's still a bunch of common irons you can buy. Buy a couple of common hickory shaft irons, pop the pin out, take a torch or a heat gun and, and heat up the hosel, put it, have it in a vise, heat up the hosel and pull the head off and then just re-glue it. You have to scratch the, the, the wood up a little bit to give the epoxy bond something to hold on to mm-hmm. and a wire brush inside to clean off any rust or dirt. And then just go ahead and, and mark where the pinhole is on the shaft because hickory shafts are like baseball bats. If you hit them on the trademark, they'll break. So you have to make sure that the grain is running in the direction of the shot you want to hit, right. not straight up and down, but uh, it's your east yeah. and west instead of north and south. Right. Club, and that was the biggest thing I learned was buy some old clubs and just tear them apart. I mean, what do you, you haven't lost it. You've lost maybe 10 bucks. Right. But you've learned $100 worth of value in knowledge from just taking one apart. What kind of epoxy do you, I use a regular hardware store epoxy and it seems fine. I generally use a marine grade epoxy, mm-hmm. which has a little bit longer set time. Right. Uh, I think that the epoxies that are quick set are fragile. They, they uh-huh. tend to crack a little bit. So I use one that maybe gives me a, a half an hour to 40 minute set time. Yeah. And then I usually put it in and leave it overnight or even even 48 hours before I mess with it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get into some a laundry list of things, but I imagine you drill, do you drill the hole for the pin after you've set the head? I pop the pin out. Right. Once I take the pin out, I will take a piece of masking tape and go around the spot where the wood meets the top of the hosel. Right. I take a magic marker and make two marks from the hosel back up towards the shaft. Then take a razor knife and cut the meeting point between the wood and the top of the hosel. So that when you take it apart, half of the masking tape stays on the shaft, the other half stays on oh, I see. the iron head. Right. So that when, after you scratch the inside of the head up or the wood up a little bit, you know, and you, you put those two back together, you know exactly where they go because the two magic marker points line up. Right. But it is very important to try and get the if you're going to put the original shaft back in to put the pins back in, I usually don't put the pin in until the next day and I'll redrill right. it. Sure. But I have the marks. So that gives me a guide as to where they match. So yeah, the holes are right there. Yeah. And you use an eighth inch drill bit, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. And I use brass drill rod. And the reason I do it, I know that a lot of people don't like it because it shows up. I do it because it shows up. Yeah. Because if I look at a brass pin, I pretty much guarantee you that club has been reset at some time. Right, absolutely. Where do you get brass drill rod? I don't know what that is. I get mine just at Lowe's okay. or you can get them at specialty stores. And what is drill rod? Just a four foot piece of brass rod. Oh, okay. I've been using um, eighth inch welding bits. You get them in a cardboard box at Lowe's or Home Depot. I've got about eight lifetimes worth of these things <laughs> uh, because they're probably two and a half feet long and you only need an inch at a time. Right, right. But they work, they work great. They're steel, so they're a little, you know, you have to rasp them down, but they're not as easy to work with as brass. Yeah, and, and I don't really think it makes a whole lot of difference what you use as far as the material. Uh-huh. 
it has to be some kind of metal, of course, but uh, brass, steel, stainless steel, I, I don't really think that matters. It's just, it's in there basically to hold it. The epoxy does most of the work. I admire a lot of people's work. There's, there's, uh, there's some really, really good craftsmen out there. I know that I think there's a gentleman in California named Dave Wood, mm-hmm. who was from the Wood Brothers in Texas, who made golf clubs. Anybody that's seen their clubs, is it's really good quality work that's been done. There's a website, I think, that you and I both look at on Facebook, uh, uh, Persimmon Golf Clubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a number of Facebook things that you can see that people have clubs and they've sent out to different people and they'll bring them back and they'll send, they'll put pictures up on Facebook of the work that's been done to it. It's not hard to see a real good quality repairman. There's Dave Bass, I know, is another craftsman. I think he's in North Carolina, I believe, mm-hmm. who does exceptional work. Uh, everybody rants and raves, especially about those two. And I hate to leave anybody out. So please, anybody that's out there repairing clubs and have left you out, please forgive me. It's not, it just, <laughs> it's out of ignorance on my part that I don't know about you, but I, I really enjoy looking at somebody's work. Let's go through sort of a laundry list of elements of golf club repair, especially in the hickory world. And we'll start off with some really simple, easy ones. How about re-gripping a club? Just walk us through the basic elements of that. I know most people have done this. Yeah. Re-gripping a club. Uh, I've seen people use the black friction tape instead uh-huh. of double-sided tape. It's a little easier. You can get leather and and learn to cut the leather in a specific width of the strip to put on there. Uh, The hardest part is the the top where you have to taper it. You put a tack in and then you wind the grip around the top of the club and then start down like a barber pole. Right. Do you taper your leather grips before you wind them on? No. So that it's narrower at the bottom or do you use a straight... I just straight use a, I use a straight because I'm I'm it depends on my customer mm-hmm. who wants it done. Uh, I generally don't taper any of the grips. I buy uh, grips already cut. It's it's one of those tedious tasks that I really don't enjoy doing. So I sure. just go out and buy it from somebody else. <laughs> and how about your tax? Where do you get your tax? The number one upholstery tax. Oh, okay. I found a company that sells. Number one, upholstery tax. Okay. And they're really small, real tiny. And I bought like 500 and it cost me like $4 or something. Right. <laughs> Pretty ridiculous. But it, it's one of the very few places that I found that you can get the number ones. Mm-hmm. Some people talk about putting linseed oil or treating the shafts once a year. I use a product that I discovered here in Port Townsend called Skidmore's Leather Cream. It's something that I think is actually made in, in Port Townsend, but we have a dearth of woodworking experts in our community. And somebody recommended this thing. But do you, do you use anything on a yearly basis just to clean your shafts or wood-headed clubs? I, main, I mainly, for my own personal use, I put spray shellac on uh-huh. Yep. I'll still wool it down and put a coat of shellac on it. If I'm going to a place like a couple of three years ago, we went to Scotland and played golf and we were playing in the rain and, and some of the clubs looked like they were maybe the wood was maybe getting exposed to the rain a little bit. So I just went out and found beeswax mm-hmm. in the jar and brought it back and put the beeswax on there just to keep the weather out. That is one of the biggest things of wood is you have to keep the moisture away from the wood. Right. So I'll post a link to this Skidmore's cream. I find it to be 
incredible. It both cleans and it preserves at the same time. And it has beeswax in it as a fundamental element of the compound. Right. It, and it is just great. It, it cleans your shafts and it preserves the, uh, the, the shaft at the same time. Have you done anything, John Henry, in terms of uh, straightening shafts? I have. There's a place in Vermont that you can get a, a board that helps you straighten shafts. Yes. Uh, and it's, it's worked really well. It takes a little bit of time. I haven't tried it on a really, really, really bad shaft, but it seems to work really well for the ones that I have. Yes. And you do that with a heat gun? I do that with a heat gun, yes. I've done it myself and I was astounded. Plus, I did it on a pre-1900 club and I was certain that the finish on the shaft would bubble and it never did. Even at 250 degrees, the shaft didn't look like anything had ever been done to it. Right. Which yeah. amazed me. Yeah. And, it, and you just have to be really careful about, I try not to heat the wood up too fast. Yeah. Uh, and try and gradually get it up there and then give it ample time to get back down to room temperature before right, I take it sure. out of the, of the device. Yes. Yeah. And by the way, I've done this, uh, I did it with a homemade rig. I didn't buy one of the Vermont ones, but I've seen those just with some blocks and some clamps. Yep. It, it yep. did the same thing and it worked like a charm. Exactly. Replacing shafts. First of all, where do you get shafts if you need shafts? Well, there are a number of people who have replacement shafts. Tad Moore, of course, makes replacement shafts. Uh, Louisville Golf makes replacement shafts. And there's a guy in Portland who has uh, wood dowels that he turns into shafts. The ones in Portland tend to be a little bit more whippier. So if you're looking for a club to have a little bit more flex in it, those seem to work out really nice. Tad's shafts are absolutely top grade, uh, no question about it. And I've had some shafts, uh, some customers have brought me shafts from Louisville Golf and they're top grade also, but they're mm -hmm. a little bit, they have a bigger taper on them from the butt end down to the tip end. Mm -hmm. But it just, those are the three that I have used. There's probably more people out there. I'd love sure. to find out if somebody's got a recommendation. I would, I'm always looking to see uh, and try different clubs, uh, different shafts, different products, different anything. Yeah. But and have you, have you ventured into replacing shafts in wood headed clubs, not just irons? Yeah, I prefer, uh, I'm not going to do any more irons. It takes too much inventory. And as I said before, my shop is really small and I'm only doing this for fun. So yeah, there's a couple that quite a few people around are, are redoing irons. I know you can send them to Tad in Louisville golf and Sure. And the guy in Portland will actually start, he's going to start doing them. And I'm going to recommend that you send them to one of those three because they have a larger selection than I have. If I get a club in, you know, I have to call and, and order a shaft and that takes time. And I, I would much rather just let them go straight to the source. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember when I knew Mike Just, he always talked about the wood on wood stuff is the hardest work to do. Uh, it is. Yes. I mean, absolutely taking a, uh, a wood shaft out is uh, a skill that there's several different techniques to doing that, to removing an old wood shaft. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Could <laughs> you just works, talk us through a basic approach to that if somebody wanted to try it? Well, there's a couple of different techniques. Uh, one of them is boiling the head in mm -hmm. water to loosen up the bond between the inside of the neck and the shaft, which requires you getting the whole head hot and sometimes wet because you've 
uh, I used to use turkey roaster bags, but still the water would get in there. And right. I've gone to taking an industrial size uh, heat gun and putting some friction tape around the top of the neck where the shaft enters the neck just to hold that top piece together and then heat the, the head, especially the neck area, all the way around and in the tip end with the heat gun because mm-hmm. you can get it, as we know, up to 250 degrees and you're not going to destroy it. And just take your time. I spend more time where the wood is thickest and less time where the wood is thin in the mm-hmm. neck. Because if you get the shaft hot, it will start to basically fall apart. It'll mm-hmm. When you put some twist on it, the fibers will actually just open right up and you'll destroy the shaft. So, And in a let's talk about a brassy as an example. Isn't the wooden end that goes through the head very thin? Uh, it is thin. Thinner than the end that's up in the top of the neck. Yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. And you just epoxy that like you would a metal hosel. Yes. Yeah. The one. And if the it's one a Carruthers about, type, you extend it beyond the head and sand it down. Yes. Yeah. The one thing about taking a shaft out of a head uh, that has a full sole plate on it, you want to take the sole plate off first because when you twist the shaft, if the shaft goes all the way through and the sole plate is covered over top of the shaft, it, the shaft won't be allowed to turn because the sole plate's on there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the screws from the sole plate go through the shaft. So you want to make sure that you get all the screws out. So I take the sole plate out and all the screws out of the head before I try and take the shaft off. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Have you done shaft extensions? I have. And is there a good model? I've never found a good one that works. I like putting an angle on the yeah, splice. Yeah, I, uh-huh. I don't like the plug method. Uh, the plug method is fine if you're going to use like an inch, if uh-huh. that's all you're going to do. Anything longer than that, I like the splice neck, where a, a, you've everybody's seen the splice necks on the on the old wood heads. Right. It's the same principle, only you put it up in the butt end. Yeah, and you're using wood glue in that instance? I used my regular epoxy. And so clamp it. and I put, well, I when I take and get the two splices where I want them together, and they, then they dry fit, and they look like they're really nice and tight, I take a, uh, a Sawzall blade and scratch up both of the pieces of wood that are going to meet so that there's something other than a smooth surface that mm-hmm. the wood can adhere to. And then I'll put epoxy on both pieces of wood, put them together, and then wrap masking tape around it. Uh-huh. And after the masking tape, I have uh, long pieces of rubber that I've cut out of an inner tube. And I will just wrap the rubber around the whole shaft all the way up, basically clamping it together like a little vise, only you're using a rubber band. Right. Friction and constant. Leave, yeah. And then leave it sit for... 24. Now you just said epoxy. Did you mean epoxy or wood glue? No, I mean epoxy. You use epoxy on a wood to wood connection. Mm-hmm. You do. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Not wood glue. No, not wood. I don't, I don't use wood glue. I use epoxy. Uh-huh. Yep. And I, here's something I just don't understand. I, I don't understand how you get that angle on that scare cut to be perfect. How do you do that? Put it on a belt sander. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, that's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> It's, but is it more, it's more than 45 degrees, isn't it, generally? You try to get as much length in it as you can, don't you? I try and get at least three inches. Right. 
sometimes more. Depends on how big a piece of extension I'm going to try and get, how big an extension I'm going to make. I generally don't try and put an extension that's going to be a majority past the bottom of the left hand on the club. And you mentioned rattles much earlier in the show. If you have a rattle, have you found some cures with without needing to take out the pin? Uh, rattles on irons are generally a result that the shaft is loose. Generally, but your remedy then would be to remove the pin and re-epoxy. Yes. I found with some pre-1900 clubs that I didn't want to mess with on the hosel that putting ultra-thin CA glue down into the hosel has worked brilliantly. So yep. these, these old Carricks and old clubs that I have, uh, I was able to tighten up that connection without removing the head by allowing ultra-thin super glue, basically, to go down between the shaft and the head. And it's been eight years since I've done this, and I've played these clubs two or three times a year. It's yep. held like a charm. Yeah. On clubs that are that old, you're probably going to be just fine doing it that way. Yeah. Now, you mentioned you have a small shop. Do you have any special sanders in your shop, or are you doing most of your sanding by hand? When I had my other shop, when I was doing classic clubs, I had a, an air drum sander. I don't use it anymore. I mm -hmm. hand sand everything. Yeah. Uh, just because I want to limit the amount of wood I take off. And when I refinish clubs or restore clubs or whatever you want to call it, I don't try and take every scratch out because... First off, most people are going to know that it's an older club and you're going to go out and scratch it up anyhow. So why take them all out? Just have somebody go put another scratch back in there. Plus leaving a few of them in there leaves a little character, in my opinion, yeah. to the club. Now you mentioned to me off this recording that uh, you used just one or two finishes on clubs and I've seen your work. It's miraculous. Can you talk about what you do use when you finish clubs? I've, I've always used a... Uh, two-part polyurethane and spray it on. I use flat on the wood shafted clubs and I use a high gloss on the more classic uh, mm -hmm. clubs. Uh, used it from uh, for quite a while. Um, used to use it back in the day when I was doing a lot of classic clubs, but it's just a spray on finish. Take your time, put it on thin, you know, steel wool it down, put another layer on, layer on, steel wool it down, and then put another layer on. So I usually put about three layers on. You did some work on a 1920s D. Anderson club that actually split in half on me uh, that Rob Alshweed had done a temporary repair on. Mm -hmm. And you did a face insert and a whole bunch of stuff. I'll post a picture of that. Did you not have to refinish a little bit of that club before you put the uh, shellac or the poly on it? I just have a lot of different stain colors. So... I get a lot of different watercolored stains and then put different ratios of stain to water. Right. So that I have different shades of colors to try. And again, I, there are some people out there that are doing some amazing staining and, and the wood looks incredible. So I, there's another aspect that I think that I could improve is the staining ability, but sure. I have probably 25 different stains right now. Yeah. You mentioned steel wool earlier. Uh, talk to us a little bit about where that can be used safely and uh, does Scotch-Brite ever become a good option as well? Uh, I've not dealt a lot of Scotch-Brite. I, I could see some applications for it. Uh, I just happen to use uh, triple or quadruple lot steel wool 
it translates through to the wood. I can feel the wood better through the steel wool than I can through uh, a Scotch-Brite pad. But I have, again, I haven't done a bunch with Scotch-Brite. But you so would use steel wool to begin removing a top layer finish on a wood club, for instance. Is that how you use it? Well, I, the first thing I try, used to be a thing you could get called zip strip mm -hmm. uh, that would take off almost any kind of finish. Unfortunately, it's banned in the United States now. It's made up in Canada and you can't get it here now. So you, I struggle with uh, different products to try and pull off the original finish so I don't have to sand. Um, but eventually you, you, I wind up having to sand some of the old finish off. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, that's why I try and hand sand it so that I don't sand down through into the head too far. If it looks like the stain is not going to come out, I won't keep sanding until it is gone i'll just right. say well this club's going to be a dark color <laughs> yeah and, and help me understand where does the steel wool get used steel wool generally is used after i put on the i'll put the stain on and then i'll hit it with some wood filler and let that dry and then i'll steel wool the wood filler before i put the first coat of finish on and then after i put the first coat of finish on i will steel wool between the first and second coat and the second and third coat of finish Oh, okay. So it's almost like a finishing, uh, it's almost like finishing sandpaper. Yeah. It just scratches up the finish a little bit and gives the next layer of finish something to adhere to. Other yeah. Okay. Surface. That's all. Interesting. And, uh, talk about rasps and, uh, I think that's the right word. Do you use a lot of those for small work or hand work? I use, uh, hand files. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like a 10 inch bastard file. Yeah. Uh, I've got a, six inch and I've got some really fine little ones that I use but most of the stuff I use is just everyday ordinary woodworking tools yeah I don't really have I've got a couple of of tools um and I've probably got a half a dozen or so that have been made for me uh when I had my other shop um <laughs> funny story there was a, a guy who was wandering around the neighborhood and he stopped in one day and he's one of these guys and and you have to, everybody knows somebody like this he just wanted to talk that's all he wanted to do mm -hmm. and i'm sitting there working on clubs and it was kind of an open area so i could talk to somebody while i was working at the same time and while we're talking you know i don't look this guy doesn't look like he could rub two sticks together and get friction right and I'm thinking, God, this guy is going to be a nuisance. He's just, he lives in a neighborhood and I've started talking to him and he's just going to be a pain in the butt every day. Well, one day we're talking and I'm kind of hemming and hawing over a project that I had. And he said, well, tell me something you need. What are you, what are you doing? He said, I said, I wish I had this tool. I wish I had something that would do this. And he says, I'll be back. And he goes home and in about an hour, he comes back and he's got this tool that he made. It was perfect Wow! For what I wanted. And I thought, holy shit, this guy is amazing. But he was just this old curmudgeon. And he would, he, every day he would come in and he'd say, what's your new idea today? And he would go home and make it mm. and bring it back. And Roger Nickel was his name. And if I owe anything to anybody about a lot of the special things that I can do, it's Roger. Wow. He built me some amazing things to, like I can vacuum pot epoxy into heads that have multiple cracks in them. He put this thing together, it looks like a still that I can use. Uh, <laughs> he was such a, a great resource for, 
I have an idea. And he would take it home. And he had a complete machine shop in his basement. Mm. I finally went home with him one day and went downstairs. And I went, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> and he could build anything. Yeah. He That's literally cool. could make any tool you wanted. We're going to talk about gluing in a minute. I want to ask you one other quick question. Sure. Uh, I have found the small adaptive thing you can put in the front of a, a drill, right? Yep. And it's yep. a copper wire round brush. And um, it's, since it's copper wire, it's soft. It doesn't really scratch up metal very much. I find it incredibly useful on my irons, just in terms of keeping things clean and taking off rust and things like that. Do you ever experiment with that? I have not. It's probably not copper. It's probably brass. Oh, it may be brass. Yeah, yeah you're right. It's probably yeah. brass. But uh, a, a very soft brass brush uh, you could probably put into like a uh, drill bit or you could put it into a Dremel tool mm -hmm. uh, to clean out the grooves. Uh, right. I, don't, I don't see a problem with that as long as you're not scratching it up terribly bad. But well, you know. Let's talk about in. gluing because I do think this is an area that you may have skills beyond the average bear. Can you talk more about gluing? We had a question on Instagram. I don't have it in front of me, but I'll look it up about repairing wood-headed play clubs that have multiple cracks. In. Uh, this is one of Roger's inventions for me. I have a process where I can take, uh, I take a wood head and I take off everything. I take whatever I can get out. I take all the screws out. I take the shaft off. I, I strip it completely down as much as I can. Sometimes you can't take the inserts out because a lot of the of the old inserts were, um, they're plastic, but they have a screw under them, like the crows on the Spaldings. Mm -hmm. Those those white inserts have screws that the white is molded around. So you can't mm -hmm. get the insert out without breaking it because there's a screw in there or a two sometimes and sometimes more. So I take everything I can out and I will, I fix up a, I have a old pressure cooker that has a lid and he drilled a couple of holes in there, put a valve on a pressure valve on one hole. And on the other hole is the uh, outlet to suck a vacuum. And then there's a copper tube that goes over to a uh, vacuum pump. So I take a, I used to use at 7-Eleven, they had those old things called big gulp cups. Sure. Yeah. I would take one of those, mix up uh, an amount of very low viscosity epoxy. It's almost like water. Dunk the head into the epoxy, put that big gulp cup into the pressure cooker or vacuum pot, put the lid on and pull a vacuum down to 29 or 30 inches, which is, I think, a perfect vacuum but we got it down there pretty close I mean it's 28 29 30 somewhere in there and leave it sit for about three minutes and what that does is it pulls all the air out of all of those little cracks and crevices it just pulls everything out the low viscosity epoxy when you release the vacuum the air wants to go back in those mm -hmm. cracks and it pulls all of this very low viscosity epoxy into the head deep into the head pull the head out, wipe it all off, wrap it in plastic wrap, and leave it sit on the counter for four days, three, four days. Uh -huh. Let the, Because low viscosity epoxy takes a very long time to harden. So you have to let it sit and harden. Uh, and then cut everything, put all of the, the insert back in, and then refinish it. But it takes, it'll add, I've, I've weighed it. I've weighed a head before I put it in. 
and then I've weighed it after I've taken it out and sanded all of the pieces, gotten it back to relatively the same head shape and everything as it was before I put it in. And it adds about five eighths of an ounce of weight just to the raw head uh-huh. of epoxy into the head. So right. it, adds, it adds weight to the head. But the incredible thing it does, it pulls epoxy into all the pores of all the cracks and, and anything else that may be there. So anything you see or can't see, it's epoxy has been drawn back in there. And I've done a number of them. I do, I do that to all the heads that are generally broken in half or two or three pieces or four pieces. Right. You must have done that with my D Anderson. I did. Yeah. 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 Your, your D Anderson needed a lot more work than that. (laughs) Hey, wait, wait a minute. Just so the listeners are following when it's in the pressure cooker, the head is inside the big gold cup, which has the low viscosity uh, epoxy in it as well. Yes, the, I yeah. put the epoxy in the big gulp cup, yeah. and then I submerged the head into that epoxy. Into and the cup. That big gulp yeah. cup goes into the into right. the right. vacuum pump. Yeah, yeah. So I'm pulling all the air out of all the little cracks and holes. Right. You know, it's kind of a pain because you have to re-drill the screw holes and you have to uh, recut where the sole Face plate was and the insert. Yeah. yeah. When you take it out, if you've got rubber gloves on, you can kind of clean up a lot of the edges so you don't have a lot of work to do mm-hmm. that's but amazing what you what you want to do is you want to keep that at low viscosity epoxy in the cracks so if the cracks are under the sole plate when i let it dry i will make sure that the sole plate area is facing up so the only mm-hmm. epoxy stays in sure the head. but i when i wrap it in plastic wrap it helps hold that epoxy around the head area and the the Plastic wrap will just pull right off the epoxy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. stick. Interesting. So <laughs> it's, it's magic. Yeah. But it, it, it's worked really, really well for me for clubs that have stress cracks. I did this back in, oh, it must have been 85 with a club that I was using as a play club for a driver. And it had a bunch of stress cracks in it from heat. And everybody's seen them out on the above the top of the sole plate, there'll be lines with cracks and there was cracks in the top of the head on the, on the crown. This club was just, it obviously looked like it'd been left in an oven and there were cracks everywhere. And I did this process to that club and it was just like granite. I mean, it was, it was incredible how amazing and solid it was. I looked up the question on Instagram. It was mainly about cracks around the neck of a wood driver. Okay. How do you, how would you handle that? Depending on how deep and how bad they are. Generally when I put in, and this is the other reason I use a little longer setting epoxy. I'll, I'll take the epoxy after I've mixed it up and I will drop some into the top end of the neck and I'll take a little, oh, it's a, about a three eighths inch piece of wood dowel and just make sure that I try and get it around the entire inside of the neck. So John, you've removed the shaft. I have removed the shaft. Uh, yeah. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, if you've got a club that's got a crack in it, you've, you've got issues inside between the inside of the neck and the shaft. Right. The shaft is coming loose. Yep. That's the only reason it's gonna crack, in my opinion. Cracks in the neck are generally because the, the shaft is loose from the inside of the neck. And then when you put the epoxy in there, I also put epoxy around the shaft before I put it back in. 
and I'll put enough in there that there's excess. And so when you put the shaft into the neck of the club, spin the shaft. So you're constantly getting epoxy around the entire sure. inside. And, yeah. and if you're, if you go slow enough, epoxy will squirt out all those cracks. Right. And then after you've got the head in there, right where you want it, and it's all lined up and the grains going the right direction and yada, 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 you can take some uh, plastic wrap, wrap that, <laughs> wrap that around the club and then put rubber bands around the outside of the plastic wrap to hold that entire circumference of the outside of the neck tight to the shaft. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about engraving. You talked about engraving before. I know this is a specialty of yours. Can you give listeners a sense of how you do that? your work? I have, back in the 80s, there used to be a, a tool that was red in color. It was it fit in your hand, it, it, an engraving tool. And it has a probably a three and a half inch metal rod that goes into the inside of the engraver. And it's like a woodpecker. It just mm -hmm. caps up and down. The nice thing is that you could unscrew the cap take the rod out and I could make different rods of different size tips to put in there. Mm -hmm. And it was variable speed. Unfortunately, they don't make this thing anymore. I've never found one that's available anywhere to buy new, but I have different tips on different size tips for different size engravings. Like I can go really, really small or I can go really, really fat. Mm -hmm. And then I, I use a jeweler's glass, magnifying glass, head, headset, and very lightly with a, with a kind of a soft medium tapping to just trace over the outline of the stamp. And then I'll trace over it again. And then I'll trace over it again. So I'm, I'm basically just forging somebody's that's already there. Right. But it's, it's, um, it's very easy to do. It's very simple. It just takes a long time to do, yeah. but it's, it's a lot better than the ice picks or the dental picks or it, because I can get a nice clean line. Yeah. And I, I can, even if something is in there very faint, I can go over it. And if I go over it again, I go over it again. If I go over it four or five times, I can deepen it to where it's really, really substantially better. Yeah. And then you do a paint fill sometimes? I do. I put a, just basically an enamel paint over uh -huh. between the, generally, the, depending on how the first and second coat come out, it may be between the second and third coat. But I'll do it several times during the refinishing process. Like when I get the club, I engrave it first thing before I do anything else to it, because that's the biggest, the, that's the deepest grooves you'll ever have on the stamping. And then when I do my sanding, I'll do it again. And then after I've done my staining and my wood filling, I'll clean the wood filler out and I'll do it again. And then after the first coat of finish, I'll do it again so that I keep that depth in there to where the paint will, will flow in into the grooves much easier. Yeah. So it's a labor intensive process, but yeah. I can put your name on top of the signature and you'll swear that somebody had a stamp. <laughs> it's your signature. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I've seen your work. Bulge and roll, is that mainly all done by eye? No, do there's you, gauges. I have do gauges. You, do you mess yeah. around with that much? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, what are these gauges? They're metal? Yes. Um, I think, I don't know if you can still get them or not. A lot of the old manufacturers, Golf Smith, Golf Works, 
Kenneth Smith had gauges. It's basically a four-sided piece of metal that has uh, like a seven inch, eight inch, nine inch, 10, 11, 12 inch radius in them. Mm -hmm. And then you just mat, you set that on top of the, on the top of the face and that'll give you a 10 inch bulge and roll or roll or 10 inch bulge. Yeah. Uh Okay. I didn't know that. A lot of the older clubs uh, were fairly flat faced. And so people want more bulge and roll on them. I can't do that because uh, to add bulge and roll to a flat face, you have to either, you have to cut both the heel and the toe. Cutting the toe is no problem, but cutting the heel, then you Mm -hmm. cut back into the neck of the wood. Yeah. And And does 10, does 10 inch refer to the total circumference or the. That's a 10 inch radius. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I know face inserts are a hot topic, especially in our Northwest Hickory group. What's your go-to for face inserts? I've been really fortunate that I had a bunch of insert material from the classic days. I have mm-hmm. uh, I have a couple of sheets of what they call, I call fiber. It's a laminated cardboard, basically. I have it in white, black, and red. There are uh, plastics that are out that I don't think you can get anymore. I've not found anybody that supplies them anymore. I would love to be able to to find out where both Tad Moore and Louisville Golf get their inserts and, and if they're put in there before they get the heads or uh, how they're put in there. But uh, I have some plastic ones. I just found a guy back in the East Coast who had 30 or 40 of them that I bought. Uh, every once in a while, you'll see somebody online that'll advertise they've got a bunch of old plastic uh, material that you mm-hmm. can buy that's already cut in the insert shape. And then they have uh, a thing called Gamma Fire. Gamma Fire was a, basically, from what I understand, and I don't know a lot of the history of this, it's a fiberglass material that was put under gamma radiation. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it's, it's hard stuff. It, it's very tough to work with. It's very tough to sand. It's a pain in the butt to put in. They are incredibly hard. Uh, I believe there's some research that's been done that said you, you gain five or six yards putting it in there. I've got a couple of clients that that's all they want when I ever get put inserts back in them for. Problem is, I don't know where you can get any more of it. Mm-hmm. So there is a, I have been talking to a fellow in Australia who claims he's not a very good, or he's new at club repair, but he's using a 3D printer to make replica inserts for uh, hickory clubs like the the not necessarily a crow but uh, multiple colored inserts like fancy faces and things. yeah, yeah. they're really cool i i i'm not technologically i am technologically challenged person uh, so i don't understand the 3d printing part and i'm going to see if i can maybe talk to him and have him make me a few up just to mm-hmm. to try but he he's put them in and and i've seen a couple of his the process he's gone through to do it and uh, they are really really sharp i don't know how well they hold up but damn they're nice (laughs) and And again that's that's something that somebody could share and and everybody could benefit from it because there's there's more than enough work out there for all of us yeah what drives most of your repair work is it word of mouth Generally, yeah, yeah. I have a Facebook page. It's called mm-hmm. Brookside Golf Club Restoration, and and several of the Facebook groups that I belong to, I I put that out there every once in a while. Somebody wants some work done. I do this because I love it. 
I, I work for about 60 cents an hour, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. On a, on a club. <laughs> Realistically, I'm, I'd be a pauper if I had to pay the bills off of what I charge people for the work, but I do it because I love it. I also do it because they love the clubs that they have and there's not anybody out there doing it. And so I want to help them out. I want to get them, I want to keep them in the hickory business. And, and I want to, I want to make sure that they enjoy golf. And if I can do this, then that's great. But I also do it because I really, really love doing it. Yeah. I've been a little surprised at how many guys that I encounter are afraid to even try to do any work on their clubs. Yeah, don't be. I mean, don't start with a museum quality club. Take an old club, find an old, again, let's go back to the same thing. Buy an old common club and tear it apart. I mean, okay, so if you destroyed, you've spent 10, 20 bucks, but you've gained $500 in knowledge. I mean, and if you want, and if somebody's got a question, send me an email or, or call me on the phone. I'm happy to talk to you and tell you what I do. It may not be the best thing in the world. It may not be the absolute gospel, but I'll tell you what I do. And then if you've got a better way, can figure out a better way of doing it, call me back and tell me because <laughs> I'm not the smartest cat in the world. And no question about that. So John, do you uh, capture some of your work before you do it? So you have a before and after image? I have. I haven't done it lately just because I've been lazy, quite Mm -hmm. frankly. I generally tend to do the work. The ones I have on my Facebook page are clubs that were pretty beat up. Mm -hmm. I think yours are on there. I think the D Anderson's on there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a lot of clubs are, you know, getting three pieces and they'll want to put it back together, Uh, especially putters. Uh, There's not a lot of of, uh, stress on a putter when you put it back in three pieces. Your D Anderson, if it stays together, uh, you know, that's probably the biggest club I've had to work on with multiple things wrong with it. Yeah. Uh, that's a play club. But I'm going to start putting more stuff on there of, of clubs that I've got in. Just been lazy. That's all. Yeah, that's great. I, I've never looked at your Facebook page, so I'll do that and I'll, I'll share some of those pictures. Let's shift gears just for a minute as we wrap up here. I heard that you're going to build a new tee box at Gearhart for the U.S. Hickory Open in 2021. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Rob and I went down. We were down there playing after the Portland golf match we had. We went over to Gearhart. And Rob wanted to have some forward tees for the ladies. So we're playing, you know, and he says, well, how about this hole? And I said, well, we could put a tee right there. And we could put a tee over here. And we could put a tee right there. So we've gone down and designated certain areas for tees. A lot of them, most of them are in the fairway. There's mm-hmm. a couple that are in the rough. So I'm going to go, I've, I've caulked the forest down at Gearhart. And I'm going to pack up and go down for about a week and dig out some tee areas in the rough. Well, I think it's maybe, most is two. And rebuild a tee that they can use for a forward tee for the U.S. Open, but they can also use it as a forward tee for just regular play. Because if you've ever played Gearheart, the ladies don't get much of an advantage down there. And if you come down and you're a fairly new golfer, it's always nice to be able to, to not take seven shots to get to the hole. Uh, Also, I know you played the world Hickory open a few years ago. What was that experience like for you? Chuck McCollum down in California put together a group and uh, 
Jimmy Von Lazo and, and Andrew and uh, Devin and Devin's dad and Chuck and I went, there was six of us. We were there 15 days. We played 18 rounds of golf and never played the same golf course twice. It was an absolute hoot. The World Hickory Open itself, I was fairly critical of the way it was run. And we don't need to get into that because- Was that a Pan Mirror that year? That was at Gullen. Oh, at Gullen. Okay. It was at Gullen, yeah, yeah. And uh, I wrote a pretty uh, interesting email to the people that were in charge and voiced my opinions on what I thought. But the, the overall experience was really cool. And I'm going to go back this year to play. And you're going to go. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think there's 10 of us that are going to go. And we Chuck put together a golf tour package. We stayed like across the street from Presswick and played there. And we played Cruden Bay and, and uh, Musselburg and Fraserburg And, and uh, we, we played a, a, just a number of the really old courses, mm-hmm. which was so cool because I'd never heard of them in the first place. I mean, everybody's heard of Canoosti and, and uh, Muirfield and St. Andrews and yada, yada, yada. But these old courses were so nice and the people were so happy to see us play in hickories and that's all we played we played hickory for the whole the whole time we were there yeah so i'm looking forward to going back and playing a few of the old courses that we played the first time but a lot of the newer ones that we haven't played so i'm i'm really looking forward to it and it's just it's just a great time and to play some of the old courses that are out there you know your your ball will be bouncing along and then all of a sudden it's just gone it's like where the hell did that go (laughs) Or the wind that you just don't know. And so they would ask me, you know, how'd you like the course? Well, the course is quirky. And, and that's not in a derogatory statement. Just you don't know how to play the course because the wind's blowing. And so you don't know that you got to hit it 45 degree angle over here to wind up 45 degrees that way. Mm-hmm. Or, or you can't get it over that ditch or burn. And you can't see the ditch. I mean, a lot of times the ball would just disappear. And where the hell did it go? went into a ditch. Well, I didn't know the ditch was there because you can't see it. Right. So, but the who was, it was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to going back and having that experience. And, and we're going to do another 15 day trip. And I think we've got another 18 or 19 rounds of golf. And mm-hmm. it's going to be an absolute hoot. I cannot wait. Yeah. Uh, also, I know you're an avid motorcyclist. Can you just give listeners a brief touch of some of your experiences on your bike? Yes. Three greatest trips I've ever had. One trip was three weeks in, in uh, New Zealand on motorcycle. Friend and I went down. We rode from the top of the North Island to the bottom of the South Island, east and west. On the South Island, there's a pass called Arthur's Pass. The grade is 16%. Mm. Nothing in the United States that I know of is 16%. The second greatest trip I've ever been on was the Scotland trip. And the third one was four of us went on a 71-day trip around the country. Mm. On bike, mm. we stopped in every state except California, and we can do that from here. Uh, and rode in Rolling Thunder. We did just under twenty thousand miles. It was spectacular. There's some amazing places in this country to visit. If I, you know, other than us going back to Scotland, if I never had to leave the United States again, there's more here to see than I'll ever, ever get to experience again. But that's my other great passion is. Yeah. Riding motorcycles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's going to come um, and I can't do that. And how can <laughs> viewers contact you if they want to follow up on this episode? Either you can go through Brookside Golf Club Restoration on Facebook. 
or you can just send me an email at Williams, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S, J-H, for John Henry, at AOL.com. That'll probably be the only person you know that has an AOL account. <laughs> You're old school. I'll thank, I'll thank my wife for that. Um, yeah, very old school. But it, the, either one of those two ways, and, and put in the subject line, golf club repair. So it doesn't, if I, you know, goes into my spam, I'll know to pull it out. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this insight. I, uh, you know, the point of the episode is to encourage all of us to be bold and care and maintain these clubs. The, you know, we are just stewards of all of this equipment and the work that I've seen that you've done, John Henry, is some of the finest work that I've seen. And it's so cool for me personally to have this 1920s club back in my bag and to hope and pray that it'll be around for the generation beyond us. Well, so thanks, I want to, I want to thank I, you for that. I appreciate it. That work. The one biggest thing I would really like to say to everybody out there is if, if you're doing club repair, share your work. I mean, if you don't want to, that's your, uh, that's your right. And absolutely. But there's the next generation and the generation after that, they've got to have somebody to teach them and, and, give them some experience and, and give them some knowledge, make them feel good, make them feel like they can do this. Uh, because there's people out there who just need a boost. They just need somebody to help them along. And if somebody has got a question, again, I am not the encyclopedia of golf club repair, but I'm more than happy to tell anybody, anything that I do, show you, help you buy it, find it, know how to do it. I do just, because I love it and I understand that if you're doing it for a business then you don't want to, you want to keep those secrets that's fine but in my opinion we ought, we need to be mentors of the next group of people that are going to take this up and now I'm getting closer to 70 you know it, it just there's a short period of time that I can do this and I would love to help anybody out you don't have to do it my way I'll just tell you how I do it thanks so much <laughs>